I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Newsbeat, where we delve deep into some of the most pressing yet underreported social justice issues of our times through a unique and award-winning collage of independent journalism and indie hip-hop. I'm Manny Faces, Newsbeat's host, audio editor, and co-producer. And when I'm not working my magic here with this podcast, I'm doing so on several others, such as Hip Hop Can Save America, Unfucking the Republic, and more. Or maybe I'm off at a club somewhere, DJing along with dope independent artists or spoken word performers, or collaborating with them in the studio, or composing remixes, or leading artist development or podcast industry workshops. <laughs> I mention all this because, well, honestly, I, I can't stop. Jamming out with music or podcasts or other creatives is part of who I am. I love the arts. I am hip-hop. It's in my heart, my soul, and, and my ethos. And as I knew I'd be recording this intro for this episode a few days back, I tried to reflect on some of its main themes. And I gotta tell you, it struck a chord. Now, I've come to realize that it's inherent within human nature to strive to create things. It's as basic and fundamental to who we are as people as, I don't know, our DNA. And for many, it's as critical to survival as breathing. For creatives, it can get pretty deep. Now, it's a special, special blessing if one can financially support themselves, and in my case, a pretty decently sized family, on these passions. But honestly, I'd still be doing what I'm doing even if I wasn't getting paid. Why? Again, I can't stop. And that's how it is for all artists and creatives. After all, there's a reason why they're often known as starving, unfortunately. Now, in this episode, we feature insights from writer and activist Corey Doctorow, who, along with Rebecca Giblin, a professor at Melbourne Law School, co-authored the book Choke Point Capitalism, How Big Tech and Big Content Captured Creative Labor Markets and How We'll Win Them Back. It's an important dissection of the corporations and rarely called out destructive forces that are manipulating, exploiting, and grossly profiteering from this innate collective passion and need to create. Highlighting the monopolistic tactics of several mega conglomerates across diverse industries spanning big tech to entertainment, it chronicles in meticulous detail how they crush competition, lock in customers and suppliers, and squeeze the actual creators dry. We focused on the arts, specifically for obvious reasons. Dr. Rowan Giblin thankfully also provides some blueprints on how we can dismantle what they call these so-called walled gardens, steel chains, and silk ribbons that are holding us all captive. Now, as always, before we dig in, you can break these chains and walls right now by just taking a moment to help support this here humble independent outlet of truth by ensuring that you're subscribed to Newsbeat, we're on all the podcast apps, and our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com. And for more information on old episodes or bonus content, artist and guest info and more, you can go to usnewsbeat.com. All right, here we go. This is Choke Point Capitalism's Stranglehold on the Arts. Jeff Bezos has already conquered the retail frontier. Now he's got a plan to colonize the planet. Bezos is laying out his plans for colonizing Bezos space. Bezos is known for going big, and now he's literally shooting for the moon. For more than 25 years, Jeff Bezos has been disrupting and transforming almost every aspect of our modern lives. Once you start connecting the dots, you see that Amazon is building all of the invisible infrastructure for our futures. Amazon announced a healthcare partnership. Amazon is helping the CIA build a secure cloud. How much of the internet do you run? Amazon really is this poster child for choke point capitalism. And to understand what Amazon did 
to become the dominant actor that it is and to become the nightmare to its supply chain and to its workers that it is, you have to understand a certain technicality about what happened to anti-monopoly or antitrust law. For most of antitrust law's history, from, from the first antitrust law in 1890, the Sherman Act, right until the Ronald Reagan era in the 1980s, so, so the better part of a century, the theory of antitrust as inscribed in those laws, the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, the Federal Trade Commission Act, and as enforced by our courts, was that when companies get too big, even if they do a good job of running uh, the part of the industry that they've taken over, the fact that they work well doesn't change the fact that they're going to fail very badly. The companies above a certain size are both too big to fail, structurally important, able to um, command subsidies from governments because if they fail, uh, other parts of their supply chain will fail with them and the customers or stakeholders who rely on them will be destroyed. But they're also too big to jail. So when they, when they commit offenses, we can't just like put them out of business for the same reason. Especially, but not only if you want a smaller state. You know, I'm someone who came of age watching uh, big governments spend a lot of money on mass surveillance, nuclear weapons, lots of things that I'm not very happy about. If you want a smaller state or not, that, that state has to be big enough to hold in check all of the things that it's supposed to be regulating, all the businesses it's supposed to be regulating. So if companies grow beyond a certain size, then the state has to also grow beyond that size in order to continue to push them around. Otherwise, we end up with corporate governance. Otherwise, we end up with companies running the state instead of the other way around because the companies are bigger than the government. Mega corporations, and by that I simply mean the one, two, three large corporations that dominate so many different industries in the United States, typically use their economic power, strength, and size to buy political and cultural influence and power. They do that by buying mass media, being the great advertisers whose words and ideas you see all the time on the mass media, by donating to political parties and politicians much of the money they need to maintain their activities, hiring and firing and organizing lobbyists to work with the elected officials between elections, and thereby to control political power. Whether or not you want a small state, you should want small companies because otherwise the companies will end up running the show or the state will balloon to a size where it can not be held to account either. As I say, for 90 years, that was the theory. We went after companies when they had too much power, even if they used it wisely. And we forced them to divest. We blocked them from mergers. We did lots of other things. And in the 1970s, during the oil shock, uh, when, when OPEC started the oil embargo, there was this moment where the economic theories of the New Deal were uh, in disrepute and people were looking for new ideas. And they turned to these fringe economists at the University of Chicago School of uh, Economics. This is the cradle of neoliberalism and of, of hypercapitalism. In 1945, in the case of United States versus Alcoa, the Supreme Court ruled that even though Alcoa hadn't pursued a monopoly, it had become one by becoming so large that it was guilty of violating the Sherman Act. All this changed in the 1980s after Robert Bork wrote an influential book called The Antitrust Paradox. 
which argued that the sole purpose of the Sherman Act is consumer welfare, which means that mergers and large size almost always create efficiencies that bring down prices and therefore should be legal. Bork's ideas were consistent with the conservative Chicago School of Economics and found a ready audience in the Reagan White House. And when it came to competition, the ideas that they embraced came from a guy called Robert Bork. Robert Bork was a kind of um, flamboyant conspiracy theorist and judge who had been Nixon's solicitor general and whom Reagan tried to put on the Supreme Court, but the Senate wouldn't confirm him because of his, his crimes under Nixon. The Robert Bork nomination ended today. The Senate voted by an overwhelming 58 to 42 margin to reject the controversial appointment. If you've ever heard the term, that's so borked, or oh my God, that's borked, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about how terribly that um, confirmation hearing went for Robert Bork when Reagan put him up for a, uh, a Supreme Court seat. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions, segregated lunch counters, midnight raids, school children could not be taught about evolution. What happened has become a verb to Bork. It means to destroy. And, and Bork wrote this book called The Antitrust Paradox, where he said, it's not just the case that um, harmful dominance is a bad idea, that it, it means that these companies that might be efficient and produce better goods at better prices and make us all better off are blocked from entering the market. It's actually the case, and this is where the conspiracy theory comes in, it's actually the case that people have been deliberately misreading the laws of America that guarantee uh, anti-monopoly enforcement, that if you squint hard enough at these laws, you will find that all they care about is blocking harmful monopolies, not monopolies per se, that they don't care about power at all. All they care about is prices. If a monopolist is raising prices because they have market power, then the state should intervene. So along comes Jeff Bezos, who has a lot of access to the capital markets. Hi there, who are you? I'm Jeff Bezos. And what, are you, what is your claim to fame? <laughs> I'm the founder of Amazon.com. Where did you get an idea for Amazon.com? Well, three years ago, I was in New York City working for a quantitative hedge fund when it came across the startling statistics. People like his vision, which is to take over all of commerce, right? So first of all, to make all commerce electronic commerce, and then to make all electronic commerce happen within Amazon's boundaries. Investors really like the idea of a monopoly. They, they hate competition. Uh, Peter Thiel says competition is for losers. Warren Buffett very famously has a giant hard-on for companies with wide, sustainable capital moats, which is to say businesses that nobody can compete with. And you want to always avoid competition. And so, uh, hence, uh, competition is for losers, uh, something we'll be talking about today. And so investors threw money at Jeff Bezos, and that let him do what he calls the flywheel. And here's how the flywheel works. Jeff Bezos uses his investors' capital to subsidize the price of goods on his platform. Some of those goods come from suppliers that Amazon deals with directly, so they're ordering books from publishers and putting them in their warehouse and then listing them on Amazon. And a lot of them, uh, increasingly, and these days, I think the majority of those goods come from third-party sellers that just sell through Amazon. 
Amazon under pressure. State investigators from California and Washington State reportedly looking into the tech giant's business practices. So what uh, is being looked at right now is the dynamic between Amazon and external sellers. So that, that let's say is a mom and pop shop um, selling their product on Amazon and, and how Amazon is able to use data on the, the purchase data, the, the amount of money going into sales and marketing um, to actually create competing products with Amazon's own third-party vendors. And the reason this is so um, key is that due to the fact that Amazon has so much data on both what consumers are buying as well as how third-party vendors are selling it, it's, it's leading to the conclusion that it's a handful of very unfair business practices as it relates to these third-party vendors. And so at first, Amazon allocates the surplus, the money that comes from its investors, to consumers. And it says, you can buy these goods at a loss for me. And you consumers will be gathered into my silo. And that silo, it has uh, both chains of steel and kind of silk ribbons that bind customers to Amazon. So the silk ribbon would be something like your Prime subscription, where if you give Amazon some money, it'll throw a ton of benefits at you to make sure that for the whole year, the only place you shop is Amazon. More than 95% of Prime shoppers start their shopping on Amazon. And if they find the product they're looking for, they don't shop anywhere else. But then there's the chains of steel that bind customers to Amazon. So if you buy a book from Audible, which is Amazon's monopoly audiobook distributor with 90% of the market, it mandatorily comes encrypted with Amazon's digital rights management. And it's a felony to remove that digital rights management and move the audiobook to another platform, which means that every book that you buy on Audible is locked to Audible forever. And if you quit Audible, you have to throw away the books or you, you you have to just never resign from Audible, never get rid of your account. So you're you're an Audible customer for life at the expense of all the books you've ever bought from Audible. And so with all of these customers locked up in this choke point, Amazon lures in more businesses who need to reach those customers, which is a reason for more customers to get within Amazon's walled garden, right, to, to sign up for Amazon. And then once that the, you reach a kind of critical mass, once those um, customers are locked in, Amazon can um, start allocating some of that surplus to its shareholders instead of to the users or to the sellers. So Amazon can say to those sellers, for example, if you want to be listed on the front page, you need to be prime eligible and you need to be fulfilled by Amazon. And the fees for that come out to sort of 40 to 50% of the sale price of your goods. But also you have to sign, just like with Spotify, a most favored nation deal. So if you raise your prices to cover those fees, you have to raise them everywhere else. So the price on Amazon will be the same price as Walmart or, you know, Costco. But that's because if you raise the price in order to make staying on Amazon sustainable, you have to raise the price on Costco and Walmart. That's one of the reasons that when you uh, tell Amazon when they have a price matching deal, when you tell them that you found a better price somewhere else, they really want to know where else it is because they want to punish the seller for violating that most favored nation status deal and force them to uh, raise the price in that other firm. And giving you a refund of the difference is cheap for Amazon if the benefit of that is being able to extinguish this rival's competitive advantage. And so you get this kind of um, uh, what Amazon calls a virtuous cycle, but what is really a vicious cycle, this flywheel that goes faster and faster. I wanna go back to the sort of core 
approach that our company has taken to take care of customers and grow the company. And it's this thing we call the virtuous cycle. This, it is true, it was written on a napkin by Jeff probably eight or nine years ago. The napkin will eventually be in the Smithsonian Institution, I imagine, but we've taken the liberty of converting it into PowerPoint. The more customers there are locked in, the more concessions it can wring from its suppliers. The cheaper uh, or the uh, more suppliers it can bring in, the more customers will sign up and so on and so on and so on. Actually, in the long run, what this is doing is just producing more and more surpluses, both from consumers and from producers, that Amazon gets to allocate to its shareholders. And the ultimate uh, version of this is Amazon gets to use its intelligence and insight into how the market is structured based on the fact that it, it sells everyone's goods, and it can decide whose goods to clone. And it can just clone their their goods, and it can put its clone of their goods way above those original goods on the search results. So if you search for product X, you don't get product X, you get Amazon's clone of product X. And to find product X, you might have to click two or three screens in. And that's when Amazon gets all the surplus for itself. Oh my God. This film is about the evolution of the music business. The industry has gone digital, with streaming now reigning supreme. Social media apps can seemingly blow up a song overnight. And with the COVID-19 pandemic shutting down live music venues worldwide, concerts have even gone virtual. But music industry revenues reached an all-time high in 2020. Artist deals in, in the 90s were incredibly, and still are, incredibly complex. A lot of, you know, a lot of times those deals will be not in the artist's favor because of the way that they're, they're structured. They were, quite simply, Old school record deals were simply bank loans at the highest rate imaginable. Traditionally, an advance was only recoupable from an artist's share of the music sales. But as record labels began to lose revenue from declining physical album sales and online piracy, they began offering artists 360 deals. A 360 deal allows the label to recoup that advance from the artist not only from music sales and streaming revenue, but also from all other streams of income for the artist, including touring revenue, merch, sync licensing, publishing, and endorsements. It's essentially like indentured labor, where nine times out of 10, the artist will remain in debt to the record label for the initial upfront advance that the record label paid them and they never paid off. So a 360 basically is, is the label has to, the label eats off of everything. The thinking was, touring, hold up, the thinking, the thinking when a 360 deal was introduced was, we are the people that are making the act famous. We're putting our money up and we're doing everything. And then that person just gets to go and do what the fuck they want. And we don't eat from anything but uh, album sales. As the industry started to decline, yes. they had to find other exactly. ways to eat. So when I see you with this, your business is great. You're absolutely right. But when I see it, I say, okay, that might be a 360 deal. And I'd like to know how you feel about 360 deals. Because if it's true, if you and your, your team are the people that are coming up with all of the creative shit behind Yachty, then what the f would I be paying capital anything for? That's my question to you. Well, I've already recouped my deal. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know what that means. Like, I've made back all of the money that I was giving in my You dance. might not have been given very much money, so that's I, an I empty was, statement was, to me. I was giving a lot for me. Over a million. Okay. I have a million dollar deal. Well, of course you're gonna recoup. You got, you got, you on his records. You should, you should. I'm a, it's my job to be okay. aware. At no point do I want to, see, again, you've got a lot of hostility. At no point do I want to discredit you 
You did discredit me, and you discredited my whole label. You did. Capital. I'm not, bro. I'm under capital, but I'm not capital. I'm QC. I'm not, I'm, oh, I'm capital. never talking about. I'm never talking about. Oh, what I'm, okay. Oh, you, okay. But what I'm, I'm talking about that's what major labels. My beef will always be the QCs that. of the world, the TBEs in the world, yeah, the shadings of the world, the people that bring the talent to the people that don't know have a clue. I'm always on that team. So no, I don't want to insult your your people. I'm insulting capital, and I still insult them. Fuck capital. To understand what's happened to the arts market in the last 40 years, I think it helps if you start where where my co-author Rebecca Giblin and I did when we were planning out this book. Both of us have been involved in the copyright wars, I guess you could call them, for a couple of decades each. We have seen over that time the um, expansion of copyright in every conceivable way. Copyright now lasts longer. It covers more works and more kinds of works. Uh, The statutory damages are higher. The ease of uh, proving that someone violated your copyright has has increased over the years as well. And, and as all of this has happened, it's definitely the case that the entertainment industry itself has gotten a lot more profitable. The record companies and the publishers and the studios and the streamers and the digital services that uh, retail their goods they're all larger and more profitable than they've ever been. Today we're looking at the streaming business focusing on audio. Spotify and other audio streaming platforms grew subscribers rapidly during the pandemic as people were encouraged to stay at home. Now that drove the demand for content resulting in more than a 20% increase in paid music subscriptions from 2020 to 2022. But the share of profits that goes to creators who are meant to be the beneficiaries of copyright, that is has Uh, declined pretty steeply over that same period, uh, both in real terms and as a proportion of the total revenue. Spotify and other streaming services have made listening to music as easy as shoplifting from a Walgreens. Yeah, you walk out with the thing, all that happens is a beeping sound. And that's why we love streaming, right? I love it. And you probably love streaming too. But you know who doesn't love it as much? A lot of the musicians you're actually listening to. Online streaming music became an $11 billion industry, making up 56% of global music industry revenues in 2019. Spotify has dominated the streaming music industry with about 130 million premium subscribers worldwide. Even though in America, people are spending more money than ever before on music, musician pay is at an all-time low. While the music industry reportedly made a whopping $43 billion in 2017, the bands and artists themselves only walked away with a mere 12% of the cut. And so the question is, how is it that we've created this artist protection scheme, copyright, and that we made it bigger and bigger, and that the outputs that creators make have gotten more and more profitable, but the share of income to creators has gotten smaller and smaller over the years. And the answer (laughs) is that when you have extreme market concentration in the creative industries, in the firms that control access to our audiences, then giving creators more copyright is like giving a bullied kid extra lunch money. It, It doesn't matter how much lunch money that kid has. The bullies are gonna take it. The fact that the bullies use some of that stolen lunch money to run big high profile campaigns demanding more lunch money for school children doesn't mean that if you give your kid more lunch money that they'll eventually stop missing lunch. It just means the bullies are gonna get more and more lunch. 
The idea that the intermediaries, um, whether they're tech or uh, entertainment, that bring our works to market have the same interests as us is just wrong. We have some overlapping interests, but at the end of the day, they would like to allocate as much value as possible to their shareholders, which means allocating as little value as possible to us. And where they have control over a market, because there are, for example, uh, five major publishers, or four major movie studios, or three major record labels, or two companies that control all the ads on Creative Works Online. A big deal in the book world may not be happening. The Justice Department is suing to block a proposed acquisition of Simon and Schuster by Penguin Random House. The DOJ argues that it would give Penguin Random House outsized influence over what is published and how much authors are paid. A giant deal today in the world of entertainment. The Disney Kingdom is on the verge of getting a lot larger, buying a huge chunk of Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox for $52 billion. Or, you know, one company that sells all the ebooks and audiobooks. When they have those choke points, they are able to shift value from us to their shareholders. And when they take the copyrights that we've been given, and that have been extended in duration to our life plus 70 years, right? So these incredibly long-lived tools, they can use them to create these durable advantages because now anyone who wants to get involved in the industry as a retailer or distributor or in, in any way, if they want to access the catalogs of works that exist, that catalog has been gathered into the hands of a small number of very large firms and it will remain in their hands for another century. And so the only way that you can possibly enter the market if, say, you're Spotify and you want to start a new way of listening to music is to do what Spotify did. Give a huge portion of your business to the big three record labels that collectively control 70% of all the recorded music in the world. And then to allow those companies to negotiate most favored nation status so that nobody can be given more per stream than they get and then have them agree to take a very, very low per stream rate so that most of the revenue realized by Spotify is not owed as a royalty, but is rather a dividend that can be paid to their shareholders, namely those record companies. And when those record companies get that money as a dividend, they don't owe it to their performers. They just get to hand it to their shareholders or share it with their performers as they see fit. So here you have this tool copyright that is supposed to be protecting creators and instead is being used as a durable tool to create long-lived advantages for firms that exploit creators. And every time we go through the choke point that they operate and hand them over our copyrights, we hand them another tool that they can use to expand both the duration and scope of that control. And so all of this says that the original sin here is to have the choke point. It's not that the companies are run by exceptionally wicked people, the people who turn the web into five giant websites filled with screenshots of text from the other four. They're not worse than the tech executives that came before them. Those tech executives that came before them, the people who founded Sun and Silicon Graphics and DEC and Compaq, they all said the same outrageous, disgusting things that today's tech founders say, you know, we're going to control the world and organize its information and be the one place people go to socialize and whatever. The difference isn't that they're worse people and the difference isn't that they're smarter people. The difference is that we stopped enforcing anti-monopoly rules. 
40 years ago, we began to dial down anti-monopoly rules under Ronald Reagan. We started allowing companies to merge with their largest competitors. We're seeing declining competition even in cutting-edge, high-tech industries. In the new economy, information and ideas are the most valuable forms of property. This is where the money is. We haven't seen concentration on this scale ever before. Google and Facebook are now the first stops for many Americans seeking news. Meanwhile, Amazon is now the first stop for more than half of American consumers seeking to buy anything. Talk about power. Contrary to the conventional view of an American economy bubbling with innovative small companies, the reality is quite different. The rate at which new businesses have formed in the United States has slowed markedly since the late 1970s. Big tech's sweeping patents, standard platforms, fleets of lawyers to litigate against potential rivals, and armies of lobbyists have created formidable barriers to new entrants. There's a story in the news right now about Ticketmaster being very bad to artists and fans, uh, keying off what's just happened with the um, Taylor Swift ticket sale debacle. But, you know, you have to understand that Ticketmaster isn't Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster uh, had a primary rival called Ticketron. Those two companies were in a race to see which of them could buy as many ticketing companies as possible. That race culminated with Ticketmaster buying Ticketron 20 years ago. And then 10 years ago, Ticketmaster, which had subsumed every ticketing company in the world and now controlled 90% of all tickets, merged with Live Nation, the company that controlled every significant venue that an artist might want to tour with, and also had the exclusive contract to book tours for all the biggest acts in the business, which they got because if you wanted to play those venues, you had to uh, sign to Live Nation and give up your exclusive right. And Ticketmaster Live Nation is now one giant company that controls all of this. The Senate Judiciary Committee today tore into Ticketmaster after the fiasco last fall over Taylor Swift tickets. Some senators unable to resist references to her songs. Ticketmaster ought to look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem. It's me. A lot of people seem to think that's somehow a solution. I think it's a, it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream. The committee called the hearing following public outrage over ticket sales for Taylor Swift's upcoming concert tour. Critics say the company wields too much control over the live music industry. Testimony today from Clyde Lawrence, a singer-songwriter in the band Lawrence. Due to Live Nation's control across the industry, we have practically no leverage in negotiating them. If they want to take 10% of the revenues and call it a facility fee, they can and have. Ticketmaster and Live Nation merged in 2010, combining ticketing, artist management, and venues under one single powerful company. Some Democrats advocated for breaking up the company, saying it violates antitrust laws. You have clear dominance, monopolistic control. This whole concert ticket system is a mess. It's a monopolistic mess. This didn't happen in a vacuum. It wasn't an accident. And it's not limited to the entertainment industry. To get your question about what choke point capitalism is, every industry looks like the entertainment and the tech industry. There's three companies that control all the world's shipping. There's two companies that control all the world's beer. Budweiser, Bud Light, Modelo, Corona. Some of the biggest names in beer, all owned by the same company. Anheuser-Busch InBev. 
AB InBev is the world's largest brewer with 500 brands in over 100 countries. It holds about 40% of global market share and a market cap of $88.6 billion. The biggest question looming over the merger between Anheuser-Busch InBev and SAB Miller was whether the U.S. government would allow it. And now they have an answer. The $107 billion merger got antitrust approval Wednesday, but with a few key consolations from Anheuser-Busch. Budweiser and Miller will still be competing in the U.S. as Anheuser-Busch has to sell SAB Miller's American operations to Molson Coors. There's two other companies that control all the world's spirits. All the eyeglasses for sale except for a few weird internet brands, and every store in which they're sold on uh, Main Street, and the insurer that underwrites nearly every prescription, and the lenses that go in more than half of the world's eyeglasses, and every brand you've ever heard of from Dolce & Gabbana to Bausch & Lohm to Coach to Oakley are all owned by one company that has raised the price of glasses a thousand percent in the last decade. Never has there been so much choice. Ray-Bans, Oakleys, glasses for running and skiing and even reading. A staggering variety of colors and designers. You'd think the competition would force the prices down. One reason it hasn't is a little-known but very big Italian company called Luxottica. If you own a nice pair of specs or shades, they're probably theirs. Luxottica is the biggest eyewear company on earth. Do you have any idea how many people in the world are wearing your glasses right now? At least half a billion are wearing uh, our glasses now. Luxottica took this medical device and turned it into high fashion by making deals to conceive and create high-quality, stylish specs for nearly every brand and label you can think of. We have Prada, we have Chanel, we have Dolce, Gabbana, we have Versace, we have Burberry, we have Ralph Lauren, we have Tiffany, we have Bulgari. The decision to allow companies to merge with their major competitors, to gobble up nascent competitors, to use access to the capital markets, to subsidize their products when a new competitor enters, think of what Uber did, where the Saudi royal family gave them tens of billions of dollars, and they used that to lose 41 cents on the dollar for every taxi ride that they sold for a decade, until all the other taxi companies went into business and public transit started to contract into a point of uselessness, and then turned around and raised prices and lowered wages for drivers. All of that stuff used to be illegal. Now it's not, or, or rather now we don't enforce those laws. And we have monopolies in every sector. Recent years have seen record highs for mergers and acquisitions, as you would know if you've ever watched the thrilled reactions they get on business news. M&A has been hot continues to be hot. An exciting year for m and A few blockbuster deals being announced. They call it Merger Monday on Wall Street. It is shaping up to be another Merger Monday. They don't call it Merger Monday for nothing. Media mega Merger, Merger Monday. Monday. Merger Monday? The other thing that holds back creators, though, is that um, we have this hammer, copyright, and everything looks like a nail to us. Whenever we get screwed, and in any new way, we turn around and just demand more copyright, which then our publishers, our labels, our studios turn around and demand that we hand over to them. And it does us not a lick of good. And so that was the impetus for this book. That's the choke point capitalism that we see where you have all the people who want to buy a service corralled into some kind of walled garden, all the people who want to sell the service having to give up everything in order to reach them. 
And that's how it affects the arts. The industry treats artists too much like a commodity and not as a person. Artists are starting to understand what rights they want to retain. The whole world wants to be in the music industry now. You can be almost homeless to going to making just so much money you can't even keep up with. Shit, everybody should be making money. <laughs> when, when you talk about like um, showing artists their business and, you know, who has to sign off on what, that's language I don't think a lot of them understand. Is that something you had to go through? And is that something that you went through, I know, with like the whole Rocco situation? Because I think a lot of people don't understand what happened. It just hears like, oh, there's a problem with paperwork and you guys kind of fell out. Yeah, no, nah, no, nah, it's, a, it's a thing where you just want to be more involved in your career. Some artists don't want to be involved in their career right. that way. Be involved in the business, going to all the meetings, and understanding how they recruit stuff and understanding about their masters and understanding who you pay back or how to get paid. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? They just know they're doing their show money. Right. And they get show money, they get publishing checks. Don't, other, don't understand the YouTube checks. Don't understand the SoundCloud checks. Don't understand other checks you could be getting that's not just show money or whatever the case may be. If somebody sample your records 20 years from now, you want to be able to get paid for that. Right. How you going to collect that money when you're not the one that can sign off on that. Somebody else is going to be getting paid off of that. Right. But if you don't know that, then you're just oblivious to the fact that you can be financially stable for the rest of your life. You just didn't set yourself up to be stable. You just you set yourself up where you're going to have to do shows all your life. Right. You set yourself up where you're going to have to drop albums all your life. Record labels historically have had a lot of market concentration, and they've been able to maintain that market concentration by locking up deals further down the distribution chain, like uh, deals with record stores, deals with radio stations. There are obviously these very famous payola cases where um, radio stations took bribes to play just one record label's uh, records on the air, which meant that if you wanted uh, your performances to reach the public, you had to sign to that record label and hand over all your revenue. Payola in our business was a record company or an artist coming in saying, hey, I got a new record coming out, here's 150 bucks. My definition of payola is getting payment for putting something on the air. It can be records, it could be talking about a restaurant, it could be without proper attribution on the air. Payola was a way of getting something that you wanted. And what the record companies wanted was lots of airtime. To get it, they padded DJ's pockets with cash or other incentives. Some reported receiving thousands of dollars, becoming so prevalent that it eventually caught the attention of the United States Congress. It became such a big scandal because it was deceptive. People were, were, it was deceptive, and songs weren't being played because they were good. They were being played because somebody was paying off somebody. And those deals, they were they were just ghastly. And the more concentration there was in the market, the worse they got. So early on, as far back as the 60s, the deals were so bad that the Beatles, for every LP they sold, got one penny, but not the whole penny, because 15% of that penny was held back by their label for promotion. And then of the remainder of that penny, they had to give 10% to their manager and split the balance that was left after that four ways among the four Beatles. And so that's how bad things were back in the old days. You had child singers who were signed to 15 record deals. 
that uh, prohibited them or their families from moving out of state until they'd fulfilled their contract. So they were locked into living in a certain one place until, you know, from the age of 12 to the age of 30, say, uh, as were all of their relations. I mean, it was it was really abominable. But incredibly, it actually got worse as the labels consolidated and consolidated. When the first digital music marketplaces started to appear, the labels continued their practice of holding back a portion of every artist's royalties to account for something called breakage. And breakage was an accounting line item that uh, referred to the percentage of records that were normally broken on a truck between the warehouse and the record store at the mall. And this breakage assessment was assessed against MP3s, right? So the the generally accepted accounting practice basis for this is screw you, that's why. Where else are you going to sell your music? You know, we say so. This was the above board wage theft. There was also below board wage theft. So until the Sarbanes-Oxley Act was passed after the Enron scandal, which created criminal penalties for executives who uh, signed false accounting statements, Most of the record labels would run third shifts at CD pressing plants where they would, between midnight and 8 a.m., run an off-the-book shift, press CDs that weren't accounted for to their artists, and then sell those without giving the artists any royalties, not even the royalties that were there. So this is the backdrop against which Napster appears. 80% of recorded music is not available at any price. Performers are being given a, a, a very bad deal, and they uh, have fewer and fewer places to sell their music. And Napster demolished the record labels. It did attract people who bought the most records, and for those people, they bought even more records. But it also substituted for people who didn't buy as many records. We're happy to welcome you all uh, out to the uh, hearing this morning. It's a very important hearing. In case you missed it, there has been an upheaval of sorts concerning how music is copied over the internet. What Newsweek magazine dubbed the noisy war over Napster involves more parties and has much broader implications than that moniker implies. Fortune magazine has called the technology embodied in Napster and Nutella the next big thing for the internet. Uh, I represent Napster Inc. and the members of the Napster community. Uh, If you would for a moment, I'd like to recognize Sean Fanning, who is 19 today. He's the inventor of Napster. He's sitting right behind me. Uh, This committee is at the center of the great constitutional debates of our country and in the protection of the rights we cherish as Americans. Let me begin with a general point on which I think everyone in this room can agree. Americans love music, and Americans are listening to and making music like never before. Record sales and music radio listening are up. School bands, choirs, and drum and bugle corps are back. And Napster's success reflects that love of music. As of this morning, after less than a year, without any advertising or promotion, Napster has attracted nearly 20 million users. My name is Fred Ehrlich, and I am the president of New Technology and Business Development for Sony Music (coughs) Entertainment. There is no longer any doubt that the digital revolution will radically change the way that artists create and consumers enjoy copyrighted works. We in the music industry think this is a great thing. These new opportunities pose great challenges both to traditional copyright law and to certain long-standing business models of how music is created and enjoyed. The labels were so consolidated and they had emptied out their cash reserves to such an extent that um, they were unprepared for the shock. And so there was this uh, mass die-off event of record labels in which the what are now the big three record labels, Universal, Warner, and um, Sony, 
use their cash reserves to buy up all of these failing record labels and and gather 70% of all the music copyrights in the world into three companies. Revenues have been tumbling for the music industry. They fell from more than $14 billion in 1999 to $7 billion last year. EMI, one of the big four record labels, was taken over by venture capitalists, but they defaulted and Citigroup took over. Now Universal Music Group wants to buy the recorded music division of EMI, but critics say if the two companies merge, it will create a super label that will dominate the industry. But even as that was going on, we saw the first digital services because Sony Universal and um, uh, and Warner were, were moving slowly to consolidate the industry. And you could start a digital business like YouTube or Pandora or like Last.fm and you could get deals with these record labels that were going under and were desperate for any kind of revenue. And so you saw the, the rise and rise of these competing platforms. And the royalties on records went from a fraction of a percent to 10% to now the industry standard is 25%. So there was a, an enormous gain in the what's called the distributional outcomes of the system. So more money was going to artists and less money was going to shareholders, which, which is good news for artists and for people who love artists. Uh, you may, if you're old enough, remember that there was a, a kind of efflorescence of streaming radio in the early 2000s and late 1990s. And this was the result of a streaming regulation in the United States that said, we would like to set a standard royalty for streaming music, like the standard royalties that we have for live performance. And they said, we're just going to bring this regime in for the internet, um, but we don't know what the royalty should be. So we're going to set it really low for now. We're going to set it similar to those other other systems, which is going to allow people who have small audiences to pay very little money to play very idiosyncratic collections of music to those small groups of listeners. And so we had thousands and thousands of internet radio stations, that each of which would only have a handful of listeners, but would represent a kind of community of music lovers. When they finally sat down to finalize that rate in the early 2000s, the uh, record industry argued for very, very, very high minimum streaming rates. And those high streaming rates they knew would put all of those little streamers out of business. And I spoke to a record executive at the time who said, look, if, if we can get the number of streaming companies down to three or four, then we can sit around a table and negotiate with them. We can't negotiate with 10,000 kids in their basement. And what we want to do is we want to keep controlling the industry. So the record industry wanted a consolidated tech industry. And as the tech industry consolidated, it ceased to um, offer better rates to performers. It became indistinguishable from the labels in terms of how it treated the performers. The more power it had, the better it got. Because again, the reason the, the tech industry treated performers better than the record industry in the start is not because they were better people. It was because they had different economic imperatives. They, they, they couldn't survive without offering better treatment. And later on, they got to offer worse treatment because the, the performers had nowhere to go. You know, the, the, these companies will only treat you as well as they have to, either because of competition or regulation. And when we eliminated competition, they became indistinguishable from them. So now we have the streaming music sector which represents a fusion of tech and, and music. The surpluses are almost entirely allocated to sh shareholders and not musicians. 
and it's become structurally important to be on Spotify, and Spotify uses its structural importance to extract even more concessions from musicians. So, for example, if you want to get in a high-value Spotify playlist, you have to agree to take even fewer royalties, right? There's even more payola. And of course, those playlists aren't fungible. If you as a listener quit Spotify, you don't get the playlist anymore. Whereas if you listen by album, the albums are going to be the same on any streaming service. And so Spotify, by shifting you from albums to playlists, is locking you in as well. The more locked in you are, the less able you are to leave, the more musicians need to give up in order to reach you because the more Spotify can penalize them if they don't sign up for Spotify. And so you have this kind of lather, rinse, repeat situation. Well, there you have it. As I said up top, y'all, I can't stop. And neither can my Newsbeat pod partners, Rashad and Chris. Thank you, gentlemen. And thank you all for listening. And in doing so, supporting what resides at the heart of our guest, Cory Doctorow, and his co-author, Rebecca Giblin's book, Pure Independent Creativity. Again, I'm a firm believer that artistry lives in each and every one of us and is a true, unrefined expression of the human soul itself. Creativity and artistry and weaponizing journalism and hip-hop to illuminate issues and people and policies and the public good have been at the heart of Newsbeat since we first launched many, many episodes ago and remains at our core. Every one of our full episodes features original verses. That's right, originally written for that episode by our ever-growing roster of independent hip-hop artists. We amplify them. We champion them. And yeah, this is really important. We pay them. So when you listen to our show, when you share it with your friends and loved ones, when you rate and review us on pod platforms, hint, hint, when you spread the love, you're supporting independent creativity and independent journalism and independent hip-hop and independent creators and artists and more. So once again... If you like what you heard, if you learned something or were inspired, please take a moment and support all of this by subscribing to our free Substack newsletter at newsbeat.substack.com and checking out usnewsbeat.com for every previous episode, bonus content, artists and guest bios, and much more. And feel free to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever podcasts can be found. A special shout out once again to our guest, journalist, author, and activist, Corey Doctorow. Follow him on Twitter at Dr. Rowe, D-O-C-T-O-R-O-W. And learn more about both him and co-author Rebecca Giblin at ChokePointCapitalism.com. They've got some upcoming panel discussions and other appearances coming up. It's all there. And of course, pick up their book, Choke Point Capitalism, on the site or by heading over to Beacon Press at Beacon.org. Once again, this is Manny Faces on behalf of the entire Newsbeat team. Thank you for listening. Until next time, wishing peace and love to you and yours. I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophets of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick for this one.